Hello, everyone. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. It's a new year, and thus a good time to reassess where the world is at and where it's headed. 2022 was defined by the war in Ukraine, an ever-expanding NATO, a U.S. desperate to maintain its hegemony amidst the rise of China, and the continued overuse of sanctions. It seems U.S. empire is so overstretched that sanctions have become the primary form of warfare. But could they backfire? What can we expect to see in 2023? To discuss this and more, I'm joined by Bikram Gill, who teaches at the Department of Political Science at Virginia Tech. But before we jump into it, if you appreciate this show, you can help it grow by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. Bikram, welcome back to the show. Uh, Great to be here. It's uh, great to have you as one of my first guests of 2023. Happy New Year. Happy New Year's. <laughs> and it's good to raise the, the prospect of the beginning of a year because, uh, of course, we kind of want to talk about some themes that I think we're going to see quite a bit throughout this year uh, geopolitically. And I know it might seem sort of repetitious, but I think it's always good when we're going to have a conversation, a broader conversation about imperialism to maybe just give like a brief definition. I know we did this last time I had you on the show. Um, But, you know, when most people think of imperialism, they do think of wars and invasions to secure resources for the global north, right? Or like if people who are more into theory will think of Lenin's definition of it as the stage of capitalism, which is all very true and accurate. But uh, that said, imperialism is in fact very a very essential part of capitalism. So just very, very quickly, because we're going to go into talking about uh, sanctions, we're going to go into talking about NATO, we're going to go into talking about Russia and China and the new Cold War. So before we get into all that, can you just kind of give a brief overview of what you mean when you say imperialism? Uh, yes. Um, so imperialism, I think there's definitely uh, elements we can take from, from Lenin. We can take from, uh, I think, uh, uh, some of what you mentioned there in terms of how imperialism functions as a means of securing resources. This is all a part of, I think, imperialism as I understand it and, and as, I, as I work with the concept. Uh, but I definitely would think about, I think in the first instance, I would agree with you that we, it's important that we understand imperialism in our current context in the modern era as a feature of capitalism and particularly as the feature that makes capitalism a world system, right? So again, capitalism conventionally understood as an economic system that operates according to a certain property structure as a means of production where um, a a system of private property, uh, a capitalist property, exploits a dispossessed class of labor to generate profits, reinvest those profits uh, uh, with the objective of enhancing capital accumulation. So that's kind of how we understand capitalism as a system. But from its inception, capitalism has operated on a world scale. Right. Because in order to stabilize that capital labor relationship, right, because you're exploiting workers, but you also need workers to function as consumers. Right. So how do you simultaneously repress wages and have uh, workers and a a broader, potentially middle class participating um, in an economy? Uh, So you stabilize that relationship through access to cheap goods. Uh, from the colonies or from the imperially subjugated territories, right? So imperialism from, the, uh, from its assumption has been very important to helping or to enabling, let's say, core capitalist countries to access uh, cheap resources, which would say can repress the cost of production 
um, in the core, repress the cost of labor, but still enable the reproduction of labor at the same time, right? So I think that's one important element uh, to keep in mind that from its inception, the capitalism has been the world system. Now, how, how does it secure these resources from the periphery? This is where I would say, in my understanding of imperialism, is a key component of it. It's through a denial of sovereignty, right, to colonized and imperially subjugated peoples, right? Now, this denial of sovereignty is what enables then a transfer of value, a transfer of resources in uneven terms, right? Because it's not an equal exchange. It's not an equal trade between two independent peoples, right? Um, and now, uh, one thing that I would also then add to this discussion, if we go to the origins of capitalism, it doesn't just happen inside of England or inside of Europe, right? It's happening on a world scale as Western Europe and uh, European countries are trying to overturn an existing economic system, right? And I know you have been discussing recently with others this idea of Eurasia, right? And the reemergence of a Eurasian integrated economy. But Europe was often on the, on the margins or the periphery of the Eurasian world system, the Indian Ocean world system, the Afro-Asian world systems. And so imperialism from the inception of capitalism was a means by, through which, by violence, uh, European states were able to capture Right, the accumulated wealth of this Eurasian world system, the Afro-Asian world system, the Americas, you know, the colonization of the Americas provides this massive quantum of primitive accumulation, right, of, of, of originary capital investment through which Europe is able to initiate its industrialization process, right? So uh, the seizing of wealth was key from outside of Europe, was key to initiating and generating uh, capitalist investment and development in the core, Right. And it, so I think it provides a, a quantum of wealth that uh, helps uh, set capital markets in motion, that keeps the cost of labor low. It, 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 it's key to captive markets. Right. So then you have places to market the surplus from your industrialized capitalist industrialization process. Um, and then it does imperialism. I think this is where you come to Lenin. There is there is, I would still say, a higher stage that is reached. Right. There is a moment in which. Um, say, when you enter a stage of monopoly capitalism, that imperialism does assume a different character, right? Where uh, there is a necessity not just simply to seize access to cheap resources, uh, to externalize costs of production, but also a necessity to export surplus capital that cannot find uh, sufficient profitable outlets in the core countries to export it abroad to the peripheries uh, where then it can um, find further profitable outlets, right? So that's a, uh, another component um, of imperialism. And so I think maybe to summarize it all, I think uh, imperialism is a, is a means through which core capitalist states, right, are able to externalize costs of production through a denial of sovereignty, right, on the regions referred to as the peripheries of the capitalist world system. Mm -hmm. um, and so that it's, it's, it's fundamental. And I think, like, you know, you can think about an empire, right, where it, there's an empire in which you might have a core region where there's a, a, a central political authority that governs it, right? But there might be marginal areas that are governed by a different political uh, arrangement, right? And those people on the peripheries don't have access to inclusion in the political system in the core, right? And that's by design. Right. It's so um, they cannot uh, lay claim uh, to the resources that are drawn from their territory. Right. Because they end up in the core country. So I think that's maybe the 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 definition that I would work with when it comes to to imperialism. No, and it's, it's very well stated. And so I want to go to the issue of sanctions, because I think we're going to talk a bit about that. Um, how do sanctions 
fit into the concept of imperialism as you just described it? Okay, so that's uh, that's that's really important because it has been in- integral um, to attempting to maintain the imperialist system and and reproduce it in the face of challenges, in the face especially of anti-imperialism. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think one thing I would add to the discussion that I just had on imperialism is that if um, if there's a certain property structure associated with capitalism in the core, let's say a capital labor property structure in the in the peripheries in the imperially subjugated peripheries in the colonized territories, there were also specific property structures that were uh, established. Right now, you can think about the the system of landlordism in South Asia. You can think about um, you know, the plantation economies um, in, in the Caribbean and elsewhere. Um, so there, were, there, was, there was, let's say, more unfree forms of labor, um, uh, other forms of, let's say, what, what may present themselves as feudal or pre-capitalist forms that are subjugated under capitalist world system uh, that, were, that were a core part of the imperialist economy, right? So there's a property structure that enables the uh, extraction of wealth from the periphery to the core, right? And so it's and it's at the moment in which peripheral, uh, the I guess the peripheral zones of the capitalist world system, the moment in which those who are subjugated by imperialism seek to challenge that property structure, right? Seek to overturn the logic of the plantation, right? Seek to overturn the logic of landlord power through which, let's say, cotton or wheat or other uh, raw materials or cheap industrial inputs are extracted, right? So they're either seeking to overturn and dismantle the existing prop- imperial property structure, or they're seeking at times to, um, let's say, claim ownership over it, right? Maybe not radically restructure it, but claim ownership over it so they can retain more of the value generated, let's say, from a plantation economy um, than, than had previously existed. So at the moment in which I think through anti-colonialism or anti-imperialism, um, people are able to challenge, right, the means of violence. Uh, and that's really important to remember that imperialism and, and colonialism, the imperial and colonial foundations of the capitalist world system are secured in the last instance, in the first and last instance, through violence, right? Through the superior organized violence that the West, that Europe has been able to impose on, on its peripheries, on its colonies, right? And so the the, um, the, 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 the task of the reclamation of sovereignty, the task of overturning those colonial and imperial property structures um, is achieved and advanced when colonized peoples, subjugated peoples are able to confront colonial armed violence with a greater armed violence, right? Mm-hmm. So they're able to establish um, a, a violent deterrent, let's say, to, to colonial violence. And I think the preeminent case of this is the Haitian Revolution. And actually, and I, I hope we can come back to discussing Haiti today, because I think it's, it's actually really significant uh, to what's going on in Latin America um, and elsewhere, right? But the Haitian Revolution in the, in the 18th century, or uh, early 19th century, I should say, you know, is a revolution in which uh, the enslaved population of the French colony um, are able to uh, demonstrate a capacity to overthrow uh, the existing colonial order, right? They're dem- demonstrating a capacity to withstand the armed violence that's at the root of imperialism, at the root of colonialism, and to overturn the logic of the plantation economy that had existed at the time. And that generates what, in my view, is the first instance of modern sanctions, right? Is that the, the French and the Americans put a trade blockade on Haiti, right? 
in order to demand that Haiti pay back France for its lost property, in order to demand that Haiti provision France with access to cheap inputs, right? So it's to almost to reproduce, even though Haiti is now formally independent, sanctions are a means through which now that you mm-hmm. cannot subjugate, the costs of subjugating Haiti to military means are maybe beyond what uh, France can continence or the United States. And so you do it through your control over the world economy. Right. Mm -hmm. That Haiti maybe wants to be an anti-imperial state, but the reality of the world it confronts is a world in which the world economy is still governed by trade networks are still controlled by um, colonial states. And they're able to put the squeeze and deny Haiti any attempt. Right. To uh, develop its economy. Right. To to secure the livelihoods of its people. And so Haiti has to resubmit. Right. To. Uh, basically neo-colonialism, right? A, a, a new imperialism, you're formally independent, but now you're economically dependent. Because And sanctions, I think, really demonstrates that, right? Dem- it tries to reimpose, because the colonial imperial states, even after independence, maintain a monopoly control over surplus capital on a world system scale. And they're able to deploy that monopoly control to uh, sanction a state that challenges the imperial property structure, right? So I think that's that's the key functioning of sanctions historically is it's cheating it's It's cheating it is it is cheating and it's it's a means to reimpose i think um uh, after a state reclaims political sovereignty uh through through economic power right it's a means uh, to reimpose that that value drain from periphery to core those imperial property structures or, yeah, I guess like in some cases, if you think about or like with Venezuela, it's like we can't go in militarily. So we go we do it this way with Syria. They actually failed militarily with their proxy war in Syria. So now it's the primary method of trying to crush Syria is sanctions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm curious, like and maybe this is the same thing. I don't know. But how should we understand the current sanctions in the global order today in the context of neoliberalism? Right. So I think like the um, the in, in the in the order of neoliberalism, I think there's two ways. I think in the, in the one instance, um, as 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 you, you, you would know and your, your listeners and those watching your program are familiar with is that, you know, the the deployment of sanctions as a as a weapon. Right. Um, to to reimpose imperialist logic on on peripheral states has really accelerated right over the past uh, few decades. And this is, I think, in, in large measure um, related to the financialization, the in- increasing financialization of the world economy and the strategy of the United States, uh, particularly from the 1970s onwards, to utilize the U.S. dollar um, by establishing, I guess, the U.S. dollar as a as the global currency um, in, in, a, in a way in which I think no previous currency really had that uh, capacity, right? The way in which they're able to tie the U.S. dollar to the oil market uh, in the 1970s, and um, you know, really the, through the, I guess, through the recycling of petrodollars through through American banks, you know, the the growing dominance of the United States over the financial and banking sectors um, provisions the United States with a and uh, a, I guess, a, a, an instrument through which it can really uh, enhance and deepen its capacity to impose sanctions on states that defy, let's say, the, um, the property structures, the economic regime that the U.S. tries to impose 
um, on the world. So I think there was an acceleration of the use of sanctions um, during neoliberalism, right, to try to force states in line with the U.S. globalization project, right? And I think the neoliberalism we have to keep in mind is a was a political and economic project, right? And not simply to deal with an internal contradiction or crisis of overaccumulation in core states, but it was also a project to restore the political authority of Western capitalism in the face of the challenge that anti-colonialism posed, right? So we can't remember what comes before neoliberalism is the development era, right? Is the Bandung era, is the era uh, at the very end of the NIEO, right? And I know people are, are speaking about the new international economic order a bit again, uh, but the, so this is the era that neoliberalism is responding to, right? And they're trying to once again, reimpose a diminished sovereignty on the peripheries, right? And so that's often done through structural adjustment, through using debt as an instrument, but when um, states like Venezuela, particularly I think Venezuela is very significant because by the late 1990s in Latin America, you have states that experienced some of the most severe consequences of neoliberal structural adjustment, pushing mm -hmm. back right, uh, on this order and, and trying to do things like which are the core policy, let's say, um, instruments of actual decolonization, you know, something like nationalizing resources, something like mm -hmm. land redistribution. So these are the measures that particular states like Venezuela are attempting to uh, advance in order to challenge the neoliberal order, right? In order to try to build out regionalism, try to build out the means through which global South states could establish substantive sovereignty, right? And, and then sanctions are redeployed here, right, as a means to discipline these states, mm -hmm. right? Um, that you you can participate in the world economy, but on subordinate terms, right? You cannot disrupt the control that the U.S. exercises over the flow of oil, over the trade of oil, um, and so on, right? And so, I th and I think, like, uh, in addition to Venezuela, this is something that we can clearly see also with Russia, right? And I think it's it's really important to keep in mind again that uh, Russia, Eastern Europe, or Russia in particular, was really severely impacted, probably more right. so than any other region, by neoliberalism in the 1990s, right? You have uh, Boris Yeltsin, who, again, is like a, he's like that clownish, buffoonish Trump-type figure before there ever was a Trump-type figure, right, in the, of, the, of the 1990s, who is essentially a U.S. Uh, puppet, right, and uh, uh, really imposing that shock therapy. And it's when uh, the Russian state tries to overturn those policies, right, in the 2000s and increasingly in the 2010s that we then see again, uh, uh, sanctions being intensified mm -hmm. um, against those states that are attempting to challenge the neoliberal ordering of the world that has as, as its objective, right, uh, the reestablishment of the supremacy of the West under U.S. leadership. That's yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, and we can, I mean, Iran, I think you could say the same about Iran, right? As soon as Iran has a revolution, kicks out the U.S.-backed Shah, it's like sanctions begin and they've only gotten worse since. Um, I want to talk a bit about the evolution of sanctions, though. And you actually talked quite a bit about this in an interview you did recently. Um, I forgot what the name of the outlet was, which I feel kind of bad about. But I'm going to actually link to it uh, in the description because it was really good. It was you and a few other people like Max Isle, I believe. Oh, I think the developing uh, economics. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, sanctions in the past were this kind of like force multiplier of war in a way. I mean, I'm thinking about like the sanctions on Cuba, right? There was like an ongoing CIA like attempt to invade, 
attack, destroy Cuba after the revolution, also many attempts to assassinate Fidel Castro and others. And in conjunction with this was the blockade, right, which is like a huge form of sanctions. Um, But today it seems like sanctions, rather than being like an addition to more traditional styles of warfare or even underhanded or covert styles of warfare, they're, they are the war. Like it's like on many countries, not all of them, but on many countries, whether we're talking about, you know, Venezuela or Iran, or like I mentioned with Syria or North Korea. I mean, these are places where the U S is simply not willing to go to armed conflict, at least not right now, not necessarily willing to go in and try to assassinate someone. Um, And so this is basically the main way in the case of Syria, they absolutely failed to do it. So now they're using sanctions So it really does seem like in all these places, Russia, like sanctions, China, sanctions are the primary method of warfare. So I'm curious if you can talk a bit about the evolution of sanctions and how, like I said, they've almost become like this primary method of warfare and why you think that is. Yeah, well, I think, again, like like I was mentioning before, I think it's become, I think in many ways, the emergence of sanctions as a primary method of warfare is is um, as as we were discussing earlier, it's a it's an outcome I think in some ways of the success, let's say, of um, of anti imperialism and decolonization, right? To establish a different calculus when it comes to military intervention. Now, with that said, of course, um, the United States and its um, uh, well, I, I need to keep, I guess, professional. I was going to say European minions, but what would you? What's what's the what's the I more? That's actually pretty. That's pretty generous. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I guess we can say it's generous. I mean, so uh, the point is, I think we have to keep in mind that they have not stopped military interventions, but those are targeted at stakes that, that they spend years actually weakening with sanctions. Right. Mm-hmm. So you think about you attack Iraq, right? You attack uh, Libya, right? After these states have already uh, effectively been forced to demilitarize. I mean, with Libya, I guess the it was um, it was almost under the. The idea of okay, hey, look, we're demilitarizing. Don't attack us, right? Which I think is a lesson. You 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 can attempt to pander and 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 appeal to uh, the West, however you may, uh, right? But um, the look look what happens to Libya. So I think there's military intervention is still something that is deployed. But look at where it is deployed. I think that gets you to the heart of your point, right? Mm-hmm. It's deployed on states that are weakened, that do not have a military deterrent capacity, right? But when you look at uh, a state like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Um, you look at uh, a state like Venezuela or Iran, where you simply do not have the means to um, establish, I think, your um, attempts to restructure, let's say, those states in ways in which their their sovereignty is diminished through military means. And so that is, I think, why uh, sanctions become the preferred instrument um, of, of imperialism. And in fact, in, in many ways, it's a it's a much more effective instrument, right? Because it, it, it demonstrates um, uh, uh, two states that, okay, you may have nationalization over your resources, right? You might have um, a, a set of really uh, potentially um, wealthy resources in your territory that can contribute to uh, the development of your national economy or the uplift of your people, but they're kind of useless if you don't have access uh, to core technologies. They're kind of, what can you, how can you develop them? How can you bring them to market if you don't have access to these markets, if you can't access capital markets, if you can't access investment, which you don't have because of the history of colonialism and imperialism, right? So I think it really demonstrates to these states uh, that if you want to now uh, participate 
uh, in the world economy, you have to restructure uh, your your and and it, it again it, it can it can enable. I think the U.S. and others to avoid something like a 20-year occupation of Iraq, right? right? To to avoid, I mean, I think you know the Libyan uh, invasion and the destruction that is imposed on Libya is in some ways the point, right? At least now you don't have a sovereign Libyan state. It may be chaotic, um, but in, in in other ways, the spillover effects of Libya what goes into Mali and the Sahel in Africa, right? Like those are not things that are entirely within the uh, control of Western imperialism right now, right? So I think sanctions may provide a a way in which you can avoid a 10, 15 year military occupation, but still impose severe costs on the people of those territories uh, in a similar way, as as you see. As, and I think the point of uh, the point of Syria is really important, right? Because like yeah. uh, Syria or elsewhere, well, one thing that uh, I would add to this discussion too that sanctions. And I mentioned this in a recent talk I gave elsewhere that sanctions has a has an ideological impact as well, right? So, like the impact of sanctions in Iran or Zimbabwe or Venezuela or Syria is something that those who may oppose Western governments don't really ever discuss, mm-hmm. right? Like, so imagine if um, if instead there was like a, a a NATO attack on Iran, you would have immediate clarity of what's happened. Right. But the impact yeah. of sanctions on the Iranian people is not something that generates any sort of political mobilization in the core. Instead, actually, what it enables is a representation of imperialist states as humanitarian states. Well, we are deploying sanctions in the interest of democracy. We're deploying sanctions. Look, at we're not violent. We're not denying sovereignty. This is just a, a technical means right, to try to establish uh, support for democratic forces on the ground or so forth. So I think there's also yeah. a way in which sanctions enable imperialist states to represent themselves, right, as technical neutral arbiters. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point because also, like you said, I mean, there's almost no cost, right? It's not like you're bringing home people in body bags. It's not like people in the U.S. see the outcome of sanctions because it's not like CNN is going to cover the fact that Iranians are dying of, like, rare diseases because they can't access certain pharmaceutical medications that they aren't able to produce in their own country and can't buy because of sanctions. That's all out of sight, out of mind. So it is useful in that sense too. You'll have almost no public backlash in, you know, these so-called, you know, global North uh, bourgeois democracies. But it is interesting too, like what you're saying about how it does suggest in a way, some sort of like weakened or overstretched U S empire. And then also speaks to that growing power in a way of post-colonial states in the global South that, that the U S isn't able to, uh, or isn't willing to take on militarily. So they use sanctions to like try to soften them up. Like you say. Um, and I know in a recent interview, you even framed the history of sanctions as a history of counter-revolutionary colonial restoration, which you sort of mentioned something earlier in our discussion that, that alluded to that. But, you know, at the same time, I've heard people make the argument that as an economic weapon, sanctions are being overused by the U.S. and might, in fact, be counterproductive for imperialist goals in the long term. And not that I want to sit here and try to, you know, give advice to the imperialists on how to do it better. But it is an interesting, like, conundrum in a way because the U.S. is sanctioning right now, for example, most of the major oil-producing countries in the world. You have Russia, Iran, Venezuela, Um At some point, like, don't you risk creating a situation where 
maybe these countries start trading oil in another currency. In some cases, they already are, but on a much larger scale, for example. Or, you know, won't this also just bring targeted states that otherwise don't really have that much in common ideologically? Like at the end of the day, Russia and Iran and Venezuela, as far as like their systems are concerned, don't have very much in common other than the fact that they are targeted by the United States. Um, and they do, of course, like want to maintain some level of sovereignty, which is why they're targeted by the U.S. But it does it seems like there's so many things taking place, particularly in 2022, that I think we're going to see more of in 2023, where you could see these sanctions backfiring if they're not already. Yeah, I think I think they they definitely have. I think I think they're backfiring in political, like 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 you're mentioning in political terms, right? In in that, um, you know, I think the the sanctions regime, right, um, and the way in which it's exercised again through this kind of strange, it's a, it's a really a befuddling arrangement between the United States and and, and Europe and the rest of the <laughs> in the rest right. of the West, right? Which I think we'll talk about later, but. Um, I think like the there's a way in which politically it's it's generated momentum, right, towards establishing alternative architectures of global governance, right, mm-hmm. um, uh, to 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 uh, whether it's the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is you know it's a that's not motivated let's say by sanctions per se, but it is motivated in, in many ways to establish forms through which. Um, you can discuss um, parameters of trade, investment, security, cooperation um, in ways that counter, let's say, the weight of institutions controlled uh, by the West, right? Which again have their main as their main aim uh, the con- ongoing denial or diminishment of sovereignty for non-Western global South states, right? And so I think, mm-hmm. like, um, but the interesting thing is, I don't think the United States has an option. This is the problem. Right. And this is the thing is, the, is that the West and the United States are so committed to imperialism. They're so committed to maintaining unequal exchange, uneven mm-hmm. flows of economic resources. Right. That as they see a state like Venezuela, uh, the Bolivarian project in the late 1990s and the 2000s. Right. As they see this project, as they see Iran in the 1990s. Right. Provisioning Hezbollah. Right. With the means through which the material means. Right. Like we can again, we can talk about movements. A lot of people love to celebrate these nebulous movements. Right. That have have, have leaderless, actually, leaderless movements. They leaderless love leaderless movements, movements. <laughs> but, or people just look like uh, again, like um, something like BDS. It's so important. Right. But it's oh, like, right, yeah. but they, no, but people love to celebrate movements that are divorced from any concrete power that basically have as their endpoint a request from the West to be nicer. Like, can you please, um, can you please boycott the state for us? Can you please do this? Which is important. I'm not trying to miss it. But like the, in, what, what is Iran doing in the 1990s? They're, they're establishing a means to, a material means to overcome the Oslo framework, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're threatening actually the neoliberal order materially, right? And that's when the Clinton administration imposes sanctions on Iran, right? They escalate the sanctions and their explicit purpose is because they're upset with what how Iran is arming the resistance in in Lebanon, right? right? And what this means for its regional hegemony, right? So I think like can the even if it's backfiring and it is, right? You're seeing uh, increasing cooperation among sanctioned states, increasing discussion of trading core commodities in non-U.S. denominated currencies, right? Maybe some movement towards gold, maybe some movement towards the one. Um, the, 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 you, you see this happening as deepening cooperation, but I don't think the imperialist states have a choice because their other choice is to accept equal integration, 
right? To accept, let's say, for example, a rising China or a rising Venezuela or an Iran on equal terms. Yeah, right? Now, to accept happen, it on yeah. equal terms <laughs> would mean to accept a diminishment over your monopoly power right. over the world economy. So what I would say is I, I think there definitely are contradictions. There definitely is a deepening of cooperation. A building of an alternative economic architecture is certainly in motion, right? Uh, but I don't think that matters, to the to the to the imperial states. Yeah, because there's this broader thing that's like a bigger problem. It's like what you said, it's the broader arrangement of maintaining imperialist hegemony over the world with the US at the top and everybody else underneath is the big goal and so in the meantime there might be some, you know, some contradictions, but they have no choice. And it almost kind of suggests like they've already lost, not yet, but like on this trajectory they will have but of course, nothing set in stone. And one of the and bringing it to that broader issue of trying to prevent China's rise, um, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that what we're witnessing now, and maybe not so much now, because I know you have some things to say about this, but at least more publicly, is the transformation of or the reconfiguration of NATO into this anti-China alliance. So, like when people think of NATO, they think of Russia. For obvious reasons, because that's the reason for NATO initially coming into existence is to be this anti anti Russian military alliance. But one way that it's become clear that the new Cold War is about preventing Eurasian integration, which you mentioned earlier, is the way that we're watching the U.S. and NATO leaders talking quite openly about NATO being an anti-China alliance as well. So can you talk a bit about that? Can you talk about this reconfiguration of, of NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? I want to emphasize North Atlantic because, again, China is far away from the Atlantic, but doesn't seem to matter. But w why is this happening? And why is this so significant for Europe in particular? Yeah, so I think that's that's, that's this is really important. So I think the... Um, one thing I just want to, uh, maybe a bit of an aside, but I'm really interested by this one historical, I think there's an interesting historical, there's a way we can look at history and think about how to understand NATO and U.S. leadership over Europe, right? U.S. control over Europe, right? How the U.S. imposes a particular, let's say, North Atlantic logic. What is this Atlanticist logic, right? And it's North Atlantic, right? And it's North Atlantic for a reason, I think. And it is a projection of power. Right, so there was a Haitian anthropologist, uh, Michel Rolf Triot, who wrote um, in, in one of his texts that the colonization of the Americas transformed um, or uh, reconfigured the way Europe uh, apprehended its relations with its others in Africa and Asia as well. Right. So, uh, and, I'll, and I'm going to, I promise I'm going to come to the NATO question contemporarily. So I believe I you. This, I believe you. I'm sitting okay. back. I want, I'm excited for this. <laughs> okay. It's because I just find it, what's really interesting is, okay, like if you think about, um, there was a, a logic in the foundation of the United States. The founding of the United States, right, was a rejection of the treaty that the British crown signed with indigenous people in the Americas, right? The Royal Proclamation, which was a respect, right, of the sovereignty of indigenous peoples, I think, west of the Eastern Divide, right? And the U.S. settlers were like, wait, that's, that's outrageous. How can you yeah. say we're not allowed to steal any more land? This is the foundation of this country. Right? It's founded on rejecting a treaty between uh, the crown and indigenous peoples, right? Very so, fitting. you know, the, the broken treaties, whether we're thinking Minsk, right? If you, like, I mean, look at, look at Minsk treaty. It's really interesting because there's an attempt 
right? There's an attempt there to think through, right, uh, Germany, France, uh, uh, Russia, to think through uh, an alternative to Atlanticism, right? Mm -hmm. To think about a Eurasian uh, future, right? And we know who torpedoed the Minsk Treaty, right? And we know, like, um, the, 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 the either the, the understandings and the consensus with, with China and the West when it comes to uh, Taiwan or elsewhere, um, the United States is often at the forefront of undermining uh, existing treaties. But so I think what I just wanted to mention as a bit of an aside to begin with, that I think the Atlanticist logic, right, that what, what drives the United States, right, is a certain, I think, expansionary colonial imperial logic that is totally unrestrained, right? And it's not trying to say uh, European colonizers historically were... Uh, let's say, a, a better type of colonialism. That's not the point. But there's something, I think, historically historically we can find that was particularly unrestrained and expansionary about U.S. settler colonialism and its translation into world imperialism, right? And I think that's something that's just interesting to think about in, in the midst of all of this is what do we mean by Atlanticism? What is the logic underpinning it, right, that seems to uh, totally deny or diminish the existing history of relations between Europe, Africa, and Asia that were that do have a longer history, not on colonial or imperial terms, right? There, that there may may be a potential uh, for an integration, ah. for a set of cooperation, but the that the, there's a history, I think, of a settler colonial eliminationist domination supremacist logic uh, that the United States returns to. That's constitutive of the U.S. leadership of the West. Right. Um, and, and so what I will say about NATO and China, and, and um, I just want to read something out on this, is that this is not something, you know, I think we've been hearing a lot of anxiety and worries uh, about the West, about the rise of China, especially since Obama declared his pivot to, uh, I guess, Obama and Hillary Clinton in 2009, 2010, when they're like, uh oh, what's happening? Um, we need to pivot to Asia. Of course, by then it's way too late uh, because, you know, they're. They've been in their own, I guess, end of history supremacism. The United States is thinking they can just go into Iraq, Afghanistan, and just bulldoze across the world. Uh, and then they get wind of, okay, well, China has built up actually a really, they've laid the foundations for, for a, a world economy uh, independent of, of U.S. power, right? So that's, I mean, you, you've, you've heard rising concerns about China over the last decade, but even uh, in 2005, um, and, and before I read this, the context, I think this, so this is an article in The Atlantic written by Robert Kaplan. Uh, Robert Kaplan is a, um, I guess, a U.S. Great foreign guy. policy bigwig, right? Like, uh, <laughs> but definitely like an influential thinker when it comes to U.S. Uh, foreign yeah. policy circles, right? So what's happening in 2005, right? We got to remember, this is the Iraq war. What was France and Germany's reaction to the Iraq war? They were really like, wow, the United States is actually the big problem. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in the world, right? Like uh, you had, of course, the Bush Blair, um, you know, before Europe minion, I don't know if poodle is a better word, but you know, the, 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 the UK are always the faithful, I think, follower of the Americans. Uh, so at that time, but besides um, the, the British state, I think you had at that time um, uh, a certain revulsion and a really um, loss of a fundamental loss of legitimacy of US leadership in 2005. Right. Like and there is increasing discussions between France and Germany and China and Russia at the time about the need to develop uh, security arrangements independent of the United States. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, 
just just a, a immense criticism of the United States unilateralism and its hubris, right, in in defying any form of uh, international consensus on the invasion of Iraq. Right? And I think it's important to keep in mind here, too, that prior to the invasion of Iraq, somebody like Vladimir Putin was uh, was not a, a radical in, in trying to challenge the existing order. He was trying to integrate Russia on equal terms into the order. And when the invasion of Iraq happens, that's a moment in which I think the, the, the Russian state, for example, is really taken aback. And it's just like, uh, you know, uh, really shocked that that the United States would actually go ahead with this. And and so you, this is a it's, it's a moment in which the U.S. is maybe having uh, coming to terms or confronting a Europe, it may be losing, right? And what does it have to offer Europe, right? Like, again, the, uh, the U.S., I think uh, some of Piketty's recent work uh, emphasizes that there's absolutely zero public wealth in the United States. So much of U.S. wealth is tied up in obviously the military industrial complex, but what sort of actually productive investments could the U.S. bring to Europe, right? Like it's, a, it's increasingly becoming clear by the mid-2000s that this relationship is maybe one that, that that Europe maybe needs to consider developing its own independent security arrangement, independent of NATO. And so at this time, uh, Kaplan writes a piece where he emphasizes, actually, he's basically saying the title of the piece is um, How We Would Fight China in 2005. Wow. Right? And he's identifying, even though the United States is in Iraq and Afghanistan, he's identifying China by 2005 as actually the primary threat to uh, continued U.S. predominance, right? Mm-hmm. And um, his argument is a familiar argument today, but it's that, that it's that NATO it's that NATO will be necessary. It's through NATO that Europe can be brought back in line with U.S. leadership, right? So what is what he what he basically says is that the uh, resurgence of NATO would be an indispensable war fighting instrument in America's war with NATO. NATO is ours to lead, unlike the increasingly powerful European Union, whose own defense force, should it become a reality, would inevitably emerge as a competing regional power, one that might align itself with China in order to balance against us. NATO and an autonomous European defense force cannot both prosper. Only one can, and we should want it to be the former so that Europe is a military asset for us, not a liability as we confront China, right? So I think like, um, and that's really important to keep in mind, right? Because I think a lot of folks who, are, who were critical of US imperialism 10 years ago or 15 years ago have really dropped that, right? Mm-hmm. And they, there's become this emphasis on this inter-imperialism or these like, uh, this, this rivalry between Sub-imperialism states. or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so but whether it's China or Syria, we also have to keep in mind that the imperialist state of the US has targeted these states for a long time, right? Yeah. And so the, I think NATO was perceived as a means through which European security, you can present to the Europeans that we will ensure your security, right? But how, how was that going to happen? So how, what are the steps through which you are going to bring the Europeans back on side? But here's where I think the 2007 Munich Security Conference, here's where I think when the Bush administration starts to speak of expanding NATO into Georgia and Ukraine, crossing Russia's red lines, I think instigating a conflict in Europe right, that would really, really push uh, European states um, to have to decide, right, like, uh, and to, to come back into the NATO fold 
with no other choice of an alternative security uh, arrangement. I think that was maybe, I mean, these are things that I think require some more study and theorization, but we can see the steps through which then uh, Europe is brought back into the fold, how the Libyan invasion is really a core moment in the reestablishment of NATO, actually, right? As not just a Atlanticist arrangement, right, but a projection, right, of, of, of Western imperialist power under U.S. leadership, right, an attempt to re-legitimize U.S. imperialism after its delegitimization in the 2000s under the Bush administration. And as an aside, it's important to also to look at, if I was an imperialist, in the in the United States, I would prefer the Democratic administration to the Republican administration. Because if you look, well, but if, but if you look under Democratic administrations, Obama, Clinton, Biden, there's much less opposition to U.S. imperialism. Right? It becomes re-legitimized yeah. as something else. Right? And then in the 2010s, Libya and elsewhere, the United States has an explicit strategy. Right? What they call in Libya leading from behind. Right? Elsewhere, they call it a signature reduction policy where they, they don't want to explicitly be seen, right, to be bumbling around the world and imposing itself, that NATO is more uh, a means to preserve a rules-based order. It's not a means uh, of attacking and invading states, right? And I think they, they sought to re-legitimize that through Libya, but uh, the target was always, I think, China, right? It's to, it's, uh, and we look at AFRICOM on the African continent, Right. We look at the rise of U.S. special military operations on the African continent over the last 10 years. This is the means to which it's competing with rising Chinese investments that provide states across the global south and even Europe at the time. Right. On alternative to dependence upon U.S. capital, U.S. military umbrella that diminishes those states' sovereignties. Right. So I think there is a, a targeting of China for a particular reason. Right. Because even within Europe, China provides it was providing an alternative, right? And U.S. hegemony, U.S. imperial power has been premised upon controlling the levers of the balance of power in Europe, right? Since at least World War II and prior to World War II, that's how the British exercised their hegemony, right? Who controls the balance of power on the European continent, right? And so by getting the Europeans to, um, I think, to resubordinate themselves through NATO, right? Yeah. It provides the Americans with the legitimacy, with the political capital, with the access to extra resources, right? Whether it's military, military fighting bodies in Eastern yeah. Ukraine or actually uh, military resources by getting, say, Germany to up its military expenditures, right? For a potential coming fight um, with China, right? And I think this is uh, important because every time that the European continent has appeared to be going a different way. The U.S. has. Like, let's, let's keep in mind in the 1970s, right? Uh, German economic competition is rising. And who is the target of the United States um, deal with the Saudis in the 1970s, right? The rise of the, the petrodollar, right? This is a way that you really keep Germany in line um, by... Uh, you know, if Germany might be outcompeting you, and this is a story of you, the United States, it's, it's often outcompeted economically, but it's able to, through coercive measures, force even its allies um, uh, in, a, in a subordinate position, right? So I think the keeping Europe under its foot has been really important for the United States in projecting its power beyond the West, right? And I think the promise it gives to Western countries is, hey, like, you know, this will enable us to continue to draw a surplus from the rest of the world. And even though we control 
these processes much more, uh, you will still benefit from them in some ways, right? But yeah, so I think definitely uh, I would I would I would argue that uh, even uh, in large measure the the Ukraine war and the rising um, I think conflict with Russia is a first step in an attempt to subjugate China um, more broadly. Yeah. And I actually, you know, uh, building off of what you're saying, which is actually a really important argument you're making here uh, about the relationship between Europe and the U.S. and what, what what's really going on. You know, the last time I had you on, we talked a lot about sovereignty, which is something that you have expertise in the issue of sovereignty. But mostly we talked about it in the context of the global south. And so as this war in Ukraine continues to drag on and Europe is being pressured by the U.S. to implement policies that are very clearly against European interests, you know, uh, in order to weaken Russia and China, whether we're talking about, you know, sanctions on Russia and Europe having to cut off gas from Russia when they don't have the infrastructure to bring in gas from elsewhere. Uh, that's like really doing horrible things to European industry, particularly in places like Germany, uh, potentially in France and Italy. Uh, and also, you know, China's Europe's greatest trading partner. Um, it surpassed the U.S. in that respect years ago. And so by trying to force Europe to implement these sanctions on certain Chinese companies, I mean, it's really messing with Europe's own ability to have like a running economy. So I'm wondering, do you think that Europe, that European countries have sovereignty. Um, and maybe a good way to start that conversation is, can you just very briefly explain, like, what does sovereignty mean? Yeah, so I think the, I think the sovereignty in the, in the classical kind of international relations literature approach, you know, there's, there's two components uh, to sovereignty, right? If we go even in the, in the field of, say, political science uh, more generally, right, you, to, to establish sovereignty, and this is the, I think, the definition that many would critique, right? Like, like, okay, so sovereignty is not a good thing, actually, but uh, which, I, which I would disagree with. But the, the, the one, one element of the definition of sovereignty is uh, the establishment of a, let's say, monopoly of control um, over the deployment of violence within a, a defined territory, right? Uh, so, and I think what that does is it, it, it enables a political authority. Right. It, it enables a uh, political, let's say, uh, institution, a political community to establish then control over the resources of that territory. Right. To to be able to uh, direct sovereign control, independent control of any other power outside of that territory over those resources. Right now, of course, that could be a really negative sovereignty when it, when we think about uh, things like equity, development, justice. Right. So sovereignty can have a class character too, where what is the class in that territory that's exercising sovereign control uh, over those resources. But I think a key component is that sovereignty is, is defined uh, within, within that territory by a power existing within that territory uh, over there, and that it has established, I think, a, a, a monopoly over, over, over violence and authority in that territory. And then there's an external component to sovereignty in the sense that to really exercise strong sovereignty is to be recognized by other sovereigns who are exercising sovereignty over their own discrete territories that they recognize your sovereignty over the territory, right? So they recognize that and they do not impinge upon your sovereignty. So this is, um, I think, two, two elements of sovereignty. And then, you know, there's been increasing discussion, especially in the settler colonies, 
over indigenous conceptions of sovereignty, which often have to do with reclamation of control over land and resources. But what I would say, and this is obviously not what we're talking about right now, what's often missing from these conversations is the hard power question, right? That they, they say it's often like a feel-good story of indigenous sovereignty, of reclaiming land and putting all this on the table, but not really confronting the reality of the power of settler colonial states that you also have to confront. Right? Which brings us back then again to that core element of sovereignty, which is having the means to which you can establish sovereign control over your territory and your resources, right? Now, in that, in that sense, is, is Europe sovereign, I think, is, a, is an interesting, interesting question, right? Now, I think a discussion of sovereignty in Europe is really complicated in multiple ways because you have the European Union, right? You have a state like Greece that might say, uh, we don't have the same sovereignty as Germany within uh, the setup of the European Union, right? And we can look at the way in which the um, United States initially backed Right, a, a a certain monetary and economic union and a grow, growing political integration um, in Europe, right, um, as a means through which the United States could continue, I think, to uh, both find outlets for its own uh, capital, uh, but also to construct, um, I think, a, a European Union that would be subservient to U.S. geopolitical objectives vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. Right. Like um, I think that's that was one element, I think, of, uh, of, of of U.S. backing of this. So I think there is it's, it's complicated within the European Union. Some states might exercise more economic sovereignty than others mm -hmm. um, over their territories. Um, but I think like there's a there's maybe a third component to sovereignty we can think about, which is like a super sovereignty. Right. So you might <laughs> exercise, we, but you might exercise internal sovereignty. You okay. might be recognized as sovereign, but then there's a commanding height level, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where we get into something at the, at the policy space. Do you have total independence, right? With which you can structure your relations with other states, right? And this is, I think, where Europe maybe does fail uh, the, the test of sovereignty, right? And I think there have been tendencies or trajectories in Europe to get out of the U.S. security um, umbrella, right? The U.S. security framework. And this has been decade, a decades-long process. I think, um, I know in your recent show with, with Vijay, uh, there was a discussion of Gaullism in France, right? Which is really interesting because when de Gaulle is actually talking about some of this stuff, the United States is actually preparing to overthrow him uh, in a coup d'etat, right? So I think they, they have often been very wary of, of European attempts to establish, uh, like Kaplan was saying, an independent defense force of mm -hmm. the United States, right? Uh, and that's why I think there's so much discussion right now that the, the United States doesn't say, hey, we're doing this to reestablish our control over Europe, right? We're doing this to reestablish our control. We're doing this for the West, you know, which is really interesting. I think for some people, they should grapple with this, who are really uh, uneasy with discussions today of multipolarism, who are really uneasy with discussions of the challenge to U.S. hegemony is that the, the Ukraine war and the, the U.S. Um, interventions into Europe are reframed as a rebirth of the West, right? It's yeah. often like, hey, this is about the West. This is about all of us, right? Which is really, if you're non-Western, should be quite frightening language uh, for you to hear because uh, why, why, what interest do, do people in the majority of the world have in the rebirth of the West and the revitalization of that political or civilizational construct that has subjugated and immiserated the majority of the world, right? But that's how the U.S. is framing it, right? Is in terms of uh, uh, a Western rebirth 
right? Which, you know, I would say that's like a white supremacist rebirth as well. Um, but it is, I think, uh, that Europe does have a diminished sovereign capacity when it comes to establishing relations with other, say, powers outside of the U.S. orbit, whether that's China, whether that's Russia, uh, even whether that's maybe Latin American states, right? Or, so even, think, or even Iran, you could say, too, because Europe certainly was Iran very much interested in going back to the Iran nuclear deal, and it was really the U.S. that was, has been sabotaging that all this time. But so, okay, let's say it's like a spectrum of sovereignty, right? And some states are allotted more access to independence or a higher level of independence than others, like the way you described it, then there's a huge difference then between like how much sovereignty Germany and France have, for example, versus like Haiti and Zambia. Yeah. 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 Like I think most definitely, right. I think and some, some elements of that, I think a core element of that come to the legacy of, of, uh, of the colonial and imperial world uh, yeah. in which we live. That's five centuries, uh, two centuries in the making, right. In, in, in different, different places. So I think like a Zambia or a Haiti, Right, have a have a fundamental deficit in access to um, investable resources and access to capital markets that a Germany or France does not have in the same way, right? Although we are seeing that um, there is a, a a severe, I think, limitation to for for European countries to have access to energy resources, which is a problem that the United States doesn't have, right? Uh, but I think most definitely that. Um, uh, Haiti and a, and a Zambia, they definitely don't have um, access to the, um, the the depth, let's say, let's say of capital that a, that a Germany or France would have. So they're not as dependent, like, um, or they 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 are more dependent. Let's say uh, a Zambia or Haiti are much more dependent uh, on the existing, um, let's say, U.S. Uh, leadership over or control over capital and financial markets. Than, than Germany and France might be. And I would say like the uh, Haiti is a really interesting example, right? So like um, um, the, the Haitian state in the early 2000s actually tries to implement measures, right? That could establish substantial Haitian sovereignty, right? This is the government of the Lavalas government. This is the government of uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide, right? And a component of the, the rising Haitian effort to establish real substantial uh, Haitian sovereignty, of course, you know, he was demanding, you know, Lavalas, not just IRC, it was a popular demand for reparations from France, right? So this dynamic that I'm pointing to, that France has access, right, to um, capital, to investable resources that Haiti does, well, the demand for reparations was an attempt to change that calculus, right? Uh, Aristide speaking more in the language of economic nationalization, of control over or, or of challenging that unequal exchange by um, uh, attempting to enhance the, or to, let's say, politically uh, enhance the level, the, the, the wage level of Haitian workers um, in sweatshops where they're working for U.S. companies. And of course, we know what happens to the Haitian government is overthrown, right? One thing I wanted to add about what happens to the Haitian government is we got to keep in mind that Haiti and Venezuela uh, are increasingly cooperating through this uh, Petro Carib program, right? This um, this program where Haiti gets access to subsidized oil, right? And so, this is a way in which Haiti is through regionalism also establishing the means again for greater sovereignty vis-a-vis -vis the United States, vis-a-vis -vis Europe, right? Um, and the overthrow of the Haitian state was not just an attack, I don't think, on Haitian sovereignty, 
but on this regional movement as well. Right. And I think um, it's really interesting because I talked about the Haitian Revolution earlier. You know, the Haitian Revolution was a key component of the Bolivarian Revolution that inspires the Hugo Chavez government um, when they come to power in Venezuela. Right. So these are long standing com- conflicts and contestations, I think, that we're also enmeshed in. Right. So when we think about the trajectory of the future, you know, this is something that's been in motion since the Haitian Revolution. Right. The challenge to Western imperialism, the project of establishing the material basis for sovereign reclamation. And I think the other case you pointed to, Zambia, I think we see something very similar happening, right? That Zambia had been increasing its relations with China, right? It had been, um, uh, you know, and this is something that the, the, the countries in Central Africa from the 1990s, 2000s onwards had been increasingly looking towards alternatives to the West, Right. And now we see what's happened in Zambia over the past year with the IMF deal and other processes that seem to be, again, having as their aim the disentanglement of Zambia from alternative arrangements with a state like China that can build out a different regional calculus that can establish, I think, the means for more sovereign development um, in Zambia. But those are rapidly being um, undone. Do you think that you know, aside from all this conversation about sovereignty is very important, but there is something interesting happening right now where we see in the context of the sanctions on Russia, you have a significant number of countries in the global South that are allied with the U.S. or in some cases actually client states of the U.S. that are simply unwilling to join in U.S. policy with regard to Russia. And in some cases with regard to China, here I'm talking about countries like you know, India, very close ally of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. is very upset. India is playing this sort of middleman role, buying Russian oil and then selling it, you know, at a higher price to other countries, um, allowing Russia's economy to continue functioning. And then a country like Saudi Arabia, which is not only is it refusing to become an antagonist against Russia, it's also refusing to increase its oil production when the U.S. is demanding it. And it's also making, you know, gestures that it wants a closer alliance or a closer relationship with China. I mean, you recently had Xi Jinping uh, go to Saudi Arabia and even just the symbolism of the way that he was greeted versus the way that Joe Biden was greeted when he went uh, was sort of a slap in the face for the U.S., but also Saudi Arabia clearly sees a benefit to uh having a good relationship with China because they see that we're, you know, we're going to have this multipolar world if we don't already. Um, so I guess my question here is, do you think the U S is losing power over its proxies in the global South? Or is that just like too optimistic of a view? And that's optimistic, of course, coming from like my view, I'm sure other people see that as a bad thing, but <laughs> yeah, well, I, mean, I think it's complicated, you know, like I think, um, uh, I think the, I think even, let's suppose, China's strategy with Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure, um, you know, there's elements that one could even critique China on there as well, like in terms of thinking about what that means for the, uh, or I would hope that the the, the Chinese um, relation or whatever they did with Saudi Arabia would not be something that would lead to tensions uh, with Iran, because Iran is clearly a state that has positioned itself much more as a um, counter-systemic, anti-systemic state to when it comes to Western imperialism, uh, where I think if you were to look up unprincipled in a dictionary, I think Saudi Arabia would be like probably the 
probably the ideal state that would come up. But I think like, I think, I think in some ways it goes back to our earlier discussion, right? It's like, um, and also, uh, India, I think is, it's different. I think India is very much on the, on the case of Russia, you're right. But I think on China, it's very much following uh, the lead of the United States. And um, I know we may talk about India a little later when it comes to uh, India's, let's say fascism, I think. So uh, India, I think India very much, uh, you know, they, they, they actually, they were, they took the lead in, in sanctioning and restricting Chinese tech two, three years ago, right? So they're, they're a really obedient client state when it comes to the United States. But I think, I think what you're pointing to is something that's even beyond the, the individual character of these governments. There's structural processes at play, right? Where if you are like a Saudi Arabia and you're seeing what a China can offer versus what the, versus what the United States can offer, then potentially, yeah, you're you're not going to um, want to render yourself entirely dependent on uh, a U.S. leadership that maybe can't provide uh, the forms of investment or exchange uh, and stability that that China is is pointing towards, right? That so I think there is maybe a limitation. Uh, to what the United States can offer some of its quote-unquote allies, right? Now, with that said, it's complicated, right? Because we know that Saudi Arabia is at the forefront of the U.S. Let's, uh, would we call it a U.S.-Saudi-Israeli, uh, I don't know, hegemonic kind of uh, alliance that is yeah. countering, uh, um, let's say, not just Iran, but the, uh, I think the, the capacity for material resistance in the region, in, in Yemen and elsewhere, right? So I think... Um, it, that's where I would say it's, it's complicated, but I think to answer the question is there's maybe the limitation that the United States has and what it can offer its allies vis-a-vis uh, uh, China. And what I would say vis-a-vis China in that case is I think there is a, there is a way in which uh, China has prioritized a so-called peaceful ascent, right? Mm. It's deferred a outright confrontation at times right, uh, with Western imperialism. And so it seeks to sometimes integrate itself into existing, so like the existing Gulf order or the, uh, is something that maybe one can say it's necessary because you don't have the capacity to challenge Western imperialism outright, but there's a risk that that carries, I think, uh, for China potentially, unless China has a long game of potentially uh, counterbalancing with Iran and trying to establish a regional order, but I don't, I don't see much evidence of that. But there is concern. I think there should there there may be concern about what this means for the China Iran relationship because a state like Iran has been much more explicit, yeah. right, in having an ideological and political challenge uh, to Western domination. And and again on uh, on India, I'd say yes. The structurally again, I don't think India has a choice when it comes to buying Russian oil. It doesn't matter which government is in power. Right. And I know yeah. there's like a there's a debate among some people who are critical of the positions that the Indian some Indian communist parties have taken on this. But like, you know, the 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 choice of joining with the West and sanctioning Russia is essentially shooting yourself because you're then going to make yourself even more dependent on the West. And what is the history of the West with dependency? You know, they're not, not going to they're not very charitable <laughs> when they have when they have more power to exercise over you. So I think on that, that question is there. But in other ways, uh, India seems to be doubling down on its investment in the Indo-Pacific strategy of the United States. Right. So uh, these are there's yeah, I think there's multiple trajectories at play, but I, I don't see much, uh, I think, to trust that India is going to break out of entirely the Western uh, orbit. 
Well, um, so we won't see that in 2023. Uh, but I, I think a good question to end on here, and I always have so many more questions for you than I ever get to. So we'll have to do this again sometime right. soon. Um, but I think a good question to end on here that is very 2023 specific. You know, we've seen in 2022 the ascendancy of these sort of neo-fascist uh, political forces in places across Europe. You have far-right victories in Sweden and Italy. Uh, and then there's, of course, the rise of fascist movements in countries like hollowed out by neoliberalism in the global south. India is a good example of this. Can you talk about the lesson there for the left globally, which is, you know, in dealing with a neo-fascist threat as economies weaken? Yeah, I think, um, you know, and, and in India, I think the road to you know, the dominance of Hindutva, the dominance of a, like a Hindu majoritarian nationalism, right? The, the dominance or the, the threat of a, a fascist, neo-fascist order, I think it even precedes uh, the neoliberal uh, era, right? Like the hollowing out of states by neoliberalism. But I think the question that it's really important to look at is what states were vulnerable, more vulnerable to being hollowed out by neoliberalism, mm -hmm. right? Why does India have a different experience than China? Right. So and I think it comes back to some of the things we were talking about is that in a state like, you know, there's like a, I think somebody who if you have not had her on your show, you should Radhika Desai. She was one of my early teachers. You know, she's written a lot about that the that the road to Hindutva in India was actually laid not in the 80s or 90s, but in the 1960s. Right. When the Congress Party. Uh, enacts this kind of green revolution strategy of agricultural development where they abandon, right, uh, a, a, an attempt to ground development, let's say, in a broader basis through something like comprehensive land reform, right, uh, through a process, let's say, of economic nationalization that would establish far more state direction uh, over the large industrial houses and large capital in India, right, that this is what actually lays the foundation of the road ultimately to the victory of the of the BJP and the and actually the consolidation of the power of Hindutva, which is really, uh, you know, very alarming and, and uh, distressing, right? The, how consolidated the, the 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 power of Hindutva is in, in India, and you, and you can see these sort of tendencies happening elsewhere, uh, whether it's the Philippines. Or, or elsewhere, uh, I mean, in Brazil, we had had maybe potentially an important reversal, but I think the um, the, the question of Brazil is is complicated. Maybe I'll try to come to that if I have time in a couple of minutes. But I think so, like the, the a key difference of states that were hollowed up by neoliberalism, right, is that um, the developmental ambitions, right, of anti-colonialism to address the legacies of colonization, right, to leg legacies of poverty, of, of, of exclusion uh, from economic processes, right? That the that the denial of sovereignty to people in the peripheries is really borne by those in the countryside, right? Those, uh, the peasant classes, um, mm -hmm. the unemployed classes who, who Fanon, you know, he calls the lumpen in the, in the cities, right? So uh, does, does do those states, I think, which established um, a strong sovereign basis by implementing policies like economic nationalization over resources, land redistribution, right? Those are the states, I think, that have more effectively avoided the fascist threat, Right. Because what does the how does the fascist threat emerge? It's when, you know, capitalism, you know, the if the foundation of the Indian state is a foundation that kind of limits and constrains comprehensive land reform, it, it restores and maintains the power of large capital 
what future can you give to those who don't have access to land, right? Those who don't have access to any permanent employment, who are stuck in casual labor, who move from village to city, back to village, right? With no kind of uh, secure access to employment or rights. Well, you can present the objective of the state then is not one of de development, but one of Hindu revivalism, right? It becomes a, what Radhika calls, Radhika Desai calls a cultural nationalism rather than a developmental nationalism, right? So I think um, that's one thing then that points us to, look, those, those states, and you don't have to agree with them, that try to implement policies, right? That would lay a different foundation than the one that say exists in India, say, say what Venezuela tries to do, right? Uh, what Iran tries to do both under Mossadegh uh, in an earlier era, but also again under the Islamic Republic in establishing a level of sovereignty that can allow resources to be raised and developed in ways that allow for a coherent national economy, right? So in the absence of those policies, I think then we end up back in, the, in these kind of um, neo-fascist majoritarian states that are ultimately aligned with Western imperial capitalism, right? Because they don't have the means to generate their own dynamic domestic uh, capital markets and investment processes. So they, they remain dependent abroad. They legitimize themselves through a certain kind of uh, language of a revivalism, of a return to a glorious past, because they can't offer a future um, to their workers or their peasants, right? So I think that's the key question. And I think so then, Let's look at what's happening in a place like Zambia in 2023. Let's look at what's happening across the global south as the IMF and Western institutions again are trying to come in and get states to abandon right, the projects and programs that they've launched in the last 10, 15 years as they've increased their trade relations with the China and other global south states that give them policy space to provide fuel subsidies, agricultural subsidies right, that allow for broader economic participation well, now the IMF is saying to Zambia, hey, you want a loan? Uh, you have to cancel all of your infrastructure projects that are financed by China, right? What is that going to mean for a country where over half the country doesn't have access to steady electricity, right? Some of the projects that were uh, canceled are going to be canceled are really essential public infrastructure uh, projects, right? So I think you see, uh, and, and we, see, we see this intensifying debt crisis that is, that is rolling across the global south that is not... It bears mentioning an outcome of Chinese loans. This is because of the euro bond market that the United States and the Europeans rolled out for African states and other states in the early 2010s, right? But now if we are going to have a rolling back of attempts to have sovereign development, I think it's only going to intensify and open the road more for this kind of fascist counter-revolutionary process, right? So I think the lessons, I think, is to have clarity, right? You don't yeah. have to agree. You don't have to have, you don't have to agree with every state that's under U.S. sanctions or under Western sanctions, right? But have clarity as to why they're under sanctions, right? That they are under sanctions uh, for the purpose, express purpose of undoing policies that, that were important for, for sovereign development. So it's a, it's, a, it's a process to diminish, I think, the, the sovereign capacity. And as we see in India and elsewhere, uh, the ultimate outcome of a foundation of a state that is missing those policies um, is, is quite unpleasant and, and concerning, I guess. Yeah. So. 
Indeed. Indeed. Well, I feel like there's, we could go on for like another hour, but Mm. then nobody will watch two hours. So I want everybody to watch (laughs) this, but no, it was so good to have you back on. I always like appreciate listening to your perspective on all of these issues. Can you remind everybody where they can follow you? Yeah, they can follow me, I guess, on Twitter uh, at Bikram Singh Gill. And um, hopefully I'll have more stuff coming out writing wise in 2023. So yeah, uh, anything that would come out, I would, I would post there. So. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.